Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 4. We've been uh, working through the different uh, uh, concepts and ideas of how we are united with Christ um, and in, in what capacity. This really was, uh, when, you, when you have a day because of the, the schedule and when I'm going to be out of town, we, we have the Lord's Supper uh, today instead of the third Sunday. And so to have both sacraments here on one day, um, uh, it, just, it just cried out for union with Christ in, in baptism. Okay, cried out. Did you hear it? Uh, I thought, okay. Uh, Let's stand if you're able, and I will read from Romans chapter 4. Read the uh, first 12 verses that give us the the foundation for what we're going to study today. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit, we ask. Open our eyes. Don't let us see with our own eyes, Lord, but... But give us vision, give us insight to your word, that we would understand it, that it would fill our hearts, uh, that we would be able to live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans chapter 4, I'll start in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not before God. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. But how then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised that he might be the father of all who believed without being circumcised, that righteousness may be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. When... uh, Lived back in Pennsylvania and was attending the church that I had grown up in. I was teaching a Sunday school class, an adult Sunday school class, and there we are, and the, the class happened to be about uh, infant baptism that day. And so I asked the question, well, why do we baptize infants? Now, understand in southwestern Pennsylvania, it was a, uh, uh, a large Roman Catholic population, although we were in a Presbyterian church. Um, so most of the answers that came from the class dealt with the removal of original sin. And that is a, a Roman position uh, that, that infant baptism takes away that, that original sin. No one in the class had ever heard of the phrase, a sign and a seal, 
of inclusion within the covenant family, as, as Westminster says, uh, or the parallel term of covenant baptism. There's infant baptism, and the parallel term is often used with covenant baptism. Now, um, uh, so, so we're wrestling with baptism, and today with infant baptism, and I had a, a guy... Um, I have good, strong believers uh, who have told me they've been baptized more than once. I had one guy in Wilmington uh, was joining the church, and he said, do I need to be baptized? And I said, have you been baptized already? He said, five times. I said, we're good. Okay, we're, we're good. You've you got to cover it. So, so this morning, we will only briefly, and, and because we could spend a lot of time on the theology behind it, the practice of it, uh, the linguistics and all of that, we, we, we can't cover all that today. We will only briefly cover the concept of infant baptism, what it is, what it's not, uh, what it does, what it doesn't do, and its fulfillment as we have prayed for the fulfillment of the vows that were taken here in belief and in, in Logan's heart being changed by Christ. Sacraments of, of baptism is one, the Lord's Supper is the other, are defined this way. Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They are instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. To grant us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. That's from the catechism, the the, the Heidelberg Catechism. So that defines what a sacrament is for us here. Now, the Catechism looks at today's passage uh, in, in order to define the nature of the sacrament because uh, it's fitting because Romans here deals with the theology at the root of baptism that runs back through the Old Testament. Now, in the Sunday school class, uh, we were, uh, we're, we're studying music in worship for the summer. So if you ever wanted to know about the history of why we sing, what kind of songs we sing, uh, what makes good worship and bad worship music and, and things like that, that's what we'll be covering this summer. Um, uh, why did I say that? It was, it, wasn't, it, was more than, oh, it was more than just an advertisement. Uh, I mentioned that there were, there were two guys that were talking and, and two professors in, in seminaries, and one writes systematic books and the other writes hymnals and they had a they had a little debate and said well who do you think influences the church more the guy who writes the systematic theology or the guy who writes the hymnals and it was the guy that writes the hymnals because our theology is sung every Sunday you know I might read one of those systematic books that's this thick with a real small print but you're going to read the hymnal every week and you're going to sing those songs every week but in the systematic world there are things that that run throughout the entirety of scripture so we go back into the old testament and we see the basis for what we're finding in the new testament okay the new testament doesn't doesn't push away the old testament the new testament is the fulfillment so there are things in the old which find their fulfillment in the new and infant baptism is one of those items that we have So the sacraments are visible and tangible ways in which we are reminded of God's promise, marked off as his special and particular people. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper have no inherent power to make us children of God. Well, I was baptized, therefore I'm going to heaven. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. Well, I I, I take the Lord's Supper uh, at least once a month. Well, that won't get you into heaven. 
performance or participation in the sacraments without faith means really nothing. Means, means really nothing. We can have access to the grace available to them and through them only when we act according to faith. And in fact, if you act, if you come to the Lord's Supper, uh, in fact, okay, we're in Romans, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A few pages over. And we'll see, Paul warns us about the dangers of participating, especially in the Lord's Supper, with a heart that's not right. Or in a, in a manner that just thinks, ha, I'm good for another month. Okay, I got this month covered. Or maybe it was, this one was last month and I'm, I'm on my own until the next time I take the Lord's Supper. So maybe I should take the Lord's Supper every day. No, no, that's not what Scripture teaches. There's a great danger in doing it in a fashion that is, um, we'll, we'll read it from Scripture and see what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. These are after the words of the institution here, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Okay? So, we come to the Lord's table today. We need to have our hearts right. We need to be, have, that's why we always have time of confession before we have the Lord's Supper. So that we can go to the Lord and, and, and lay before him our own hearts and, and seek his forgiveness. Uh, we, we never have enough time to confess all our sins. Okay, uh, that, that takes a lot of time to confess all of our sins. But we put ourselves before the Lord saying, oh Lord, we want our hearts to be right. So that when we come to the table, we're not eating and drinking damnation upon ourselves. And you might think to yourself, well, Rand, I, you know, I, I took the Lord's Supper before I was a believer, and I, I, nothing happened to me. Um, it was just what we did in church. And then I became a believer later in life, and I understood these things. Well, the Lord in his mercy has protected you in that fashion. Um, it, it may be that those who think that they are saved because of the elements that they partake, you know, are, are, it's a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Remember, our salvation lies in Christ, not Christ plus the water, not Christ plus the bread. It lies in Christ alone. Now, John Calvin makes this, uh, writes about the sacrament. It's an external sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences his promises of goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. And we, in turn, testify our piety towards him both before himself and before the angels and as well as men. So the Lord gives us these sacraments to strengthen our faith and to remind us of who he is, to remind us of the sacrifice, to remind us of the cleansing that comes in faith in Christ. Now these are signs. Okay, these are signs. So what's the problem with a sign? Well, you know, on Clinton... The sign used to read, about a month ago, the sign on Clinton Avenue read, one way. Now it reads what? Now it's two way, okay, signs change. Uh, man changed that sign, okay, my man put the sign up, man changed it. Well, the problem is, that throughout history, is we can take these signs that the Lord gives us, and we can kind of make them into what we want them to be, 
okay, because we are, are taking it and we are applying it ourselves. So, um, and that might come in confusion that about who should be baptized, when people should be baptized, how they should be baptized, all of those types of things. But it's not the baptism that saves, it's Christ that, that saves. So the sacraments are, are supernatural signs insofar as God has willed them to use them to signify and seal his promises in our hearts. As seals, the sacraments guarantee to believers that which the gospel offers generally. So these are signs which confirm in the believer's heart the work of the Lord. There's no magic here. There's no, uh, nothing uh, happens here that the one instant you're there, one instant you're not other than the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who participate, in the hearts of those who participate. So it is essential for us not to make them empty signs. Oh, it's the third Sunday. I better go take the Lord's Supper. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, every once in a while, uh, and I haven't had it here, but in, in, in uh, Wilmington, you know, 20 years ago, I got a call. Hey, uh, you know, we just had a baby. When can you do my kid? Mm, mm, what can I do your kid? That's, that's awful, okay? It tells you the, how, how much they did not understand what baptism was about. They did not understand it. So we go back to the Old Testament, and we look and see what is the root of this. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are two unrepeatable baptisms or cleansing. Baptism, cleansing, ceremonial washing, all these things go together. They signify uniqueness. They signify purification. And then there are 11 repeatable events, repeatable baptisms uh, or cleansings. Uh, each are given for a definite purpose. And we'll see how these tie into what we're looking at in the New Testament. The purpose of these is to instill certain truths about purity, about holiness, about uh, our, our spiritual lives, uh, and they do this by a material means. Okay? It's not just the words that come, but the Lord has seen fit to give us something tangible to, to attach it to. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you broke these laws, uh, that would put you into the category of being unclean if you didn't do these washings or if you did them in the wrong fashion. And of course, more importantly, if you were unclean, you couldn't go and worship. You couldn't go in the temple. You couldn't hang out. You had to be separated from everybody else. So in the New Testament, when they talk about these things, and they use this Greek word uh, for these ritual washings, it's clear that, that the Greek cannot exclusively apply to one term, like immersion or like sprinkling or effusion. Effusion is pouring, sprinkling. Uh, But that uh, the language gives room for a wide breadth of that understanding. So the issue is the significance of the material demonstrating the spiritual. Okay, It's the material. The material is the water. It demonstrates the spiritual reality that's behind it. Okay? It's the material, the bread, and the cup. It demonstrates the spiritual reality there. So let me give you a quick list of, of how you, why you were washed on, 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 in the Old Testament. If you were a priest and being, uh, being ordained, you got cleansed. Uh, priestly purification before entering the tabernacle. Purification on the Day of Atonement. On the occasion of the purification of the red heifer sacrifice. 
and you're thinking the red heifer sacrifice, well, you have to look it up. We can't explain it today. Purification uh, before touching or eating the holy things. Purification if you touch something unclean. Purification for the infection of leprosy. If you had eaten meat with its blood still in it, you had to be purified. Uh, Baptism or washing is connected with unclean human discharges. Objects that have come into contact with a dead person were to be cleansed by water. So most of these cleansings, these repeatable things in the Old Testament... Uh, dealt with usually our hands or our feet or clothes. Only two of them required the entire body. Most of those were just some portion of the body. So what can we conclude from this? Well, first, there's an absence in all of these examples of a specific mode. A a specific mode. It's just left to wash. Secondly, though the Pentateuch makes it clear that the whole person is defiled by this. Well, it was just my hand that touched it. My hand touched it, it made me all defiled uh, by the uncleanness. Typically, only one portion of the person was washed. Um, so view this in light of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Okay? Jesus comes around, and he comes to Peter, and you know, Peter's, he's kind of in his own world sometimes. And he says, what? You're not going to wash my feet? And he says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And so Peter goes, well, wash all of me. He says, oh, your feet will do. Your feet will do. Okay? That follows the Old Testament pattern. Thirdly, in every single one of these repeatable baptisms, the emphasis is on the application of the water to the person, not the application of the person into the water. Um, so baptism or ritual cleansing in the Old Testament had the idea of the application of the cleansing agent. The mode of the application changes according to the particular need there. So the same thought carries into the New Testament with passages connected with purification. Hebrews 9, John 2, Mark 7, all deal with the washing of some portion of the part of of the body which would purify the entire body. Which would purify the entire body. If you can recall, um, houses would often have big... um, big pots that held about 25 gallons of water and you would come in and you would wash your hands and then you would be pure but only you you've only washed your hands but all of you would then be purified to enter into the house Um, so let's look at specifically the the reform position as to why we baptized logan today why did we do this why didn't we dunk him well not sure mom and dad would go for that. Okay, well, well we've got to pray. And we're going to pray. No, no, we don't, we don't dunk infants. Now, that doesn't mean we, we won't immerse adults if they want that. But our practice here, as, as from Reformed theology, would be the baptism in by effusion, sprinkling, or pouring. So first, as we've already examined this morning the Greek, the Greek is much broader than just immerse. Indeed, there are places in the Old and New Testament where it cannot mean immerse. Leviticus, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 9, we'll we'll examine some of those in a second. Now, I certainly wouldn't argue that effusion is the only means of baptism. We certainly would immerse. Um, Our architecture does not allow for it. Um, We all want to meet down at Ditto Landing some some Sunday morning, and you want to be in the river? We can do that. Secondly, the New Testament practice of baptism confirms sprinkling, pouring, effusion by language, by usage, 
and by the context in which it happens. Now, let's, let's apply this in our life. Um, it, this never happens to me, but it happens to others who play golf. You might hit the ball in the sand trap. Okay? So you go into the sand trap. Are you covered with sand? Well, it depends on how many times you're hitting the ball in the sand. Okay? Okay? So, so that, that's an idea, and that's how one of the terms is frequently used in Scripture. They went into the water. Let me give you a for instance. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus and John go down into the Jordan. Well, what it means is they left the bank and they went into the water. It does not mean that they went completely under the water, but it does not rule out that they went completely under the water. There are places in the New Testament where immersion would really be unlikely, extremely unlikely, when it comes to baptism. Saul was baptized in the house of Simon the Tanner. And it would have been unlikely that there would have been a facility large enough in, in that individual house to do immersion. In Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his family. And Peter says in a rhetorical question, well, can anyone refuse the water for baptism? And the answer, of course, is no, you can't refuse it. Well, where are we going to get that much water to immerse those people? That just wasn't common to have in the households at that time. So Peter's question really indicates it's something easy to do. We can do this right now. We can do it right now. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and his family are baptized in water that was originally brought to clean Paul's wounds. That's not a lot of water. Not a lot of water. So third, symbolism or the significance of baptism confirms that it's okay to baptize in the fashion that we did. Water baptism signifies the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a sign. It's a sign here. We not, not only see that in Acts 1 and Acts chapter 2, but also in Jesus' baptism. Matthew and Luke tell us that the Spirit, in the visible form of a dove, descended upon Christ. So the picture of the dove descending upon Christ from heaven is present there. And, of course, there's a distinction between John the Baptist's baptism and Jesus' baptism. John the baptizes with water. Jesus baptized with the fire and the Holy Spirit. So baptism fundamentally signifies the work of the Spirit. It doesn't signify our faith because we don't add anything to the work of Christ. Just think if, if, if the Christ, the Son of God, who left the right hand of the Father... And, and in obedience came into this world and took on the form of a man and, and lived a sinless life and then gave that life up. No one took it. He laid it down for us willingly, obediently. And, and then, then the, the Father raised him on the third day. He ascended back to the throne. And there he is. He sits on the right hand of the Father waiting for the Father to send him back. Now, after all that, could we really say... Well, yeah, but there's just one more thing or two more things that you have to do to be saved. Was, was the work of Christ not good enough? Well, you, you, you have to put water on your body. Really? No. It is the work of Christ that saves us. This is a sign. This is a sign. It is not an adding. It is not Christ plus this, Christ plus that, Christ plus anything. It is Christ alone. That secures our salvation. And then finally, in that section, we have the testimony of church history. 
Church history doesn't determine what we do. Scripture determines what we do. But church history gives us a basis. And, and how has it been interpreted throughout church history? The church history shows us there is evidence of immersion and evidence of effusion, pouring, sprinkling throughout church history. Both forms were used in the earliest days of the church. Uh, so there is no evidence of a standard practice uh, throughout church history, really dependent upon the context, dependent upon where you were. It is not until the 16th century that someone begins to argue that only immersion is satisfactory for baptism. It was the English Baptist in the uh, 1640s that actually wrote it into one of their confessions that immersion only, immersion only. So it's important to remember we do not believe that the mode is the essence of baptism. Okay? We do not believe that the mode, sprinkling, immersion, pure, pouring, whatever it is, that is not the essence of baptism. The work of the Spirit is the essence of baptism. So if you come to Central and you want to be baptized by immersion, or if you were baptized by immersion when you were 15 on profession of faith and you want to join, great. We recognize that baptism. Okay? Mode... It's not the essence of baptism. So who are the proper recipients of baptism? Well, baptism is a sign and the seal of the covenant of grace. And we see that in Romans 6. We see it in Galatians 3. Children are included within that, within, with their parents, believing parents, as part of the covenant of grace in both the old and the new. We see this in Genesis 17. Let me quote I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. The new covenant promises are extended to believers and to their children as well. Acts chapter 2 as an example. Um, therefore, the sign of the covenant, especially the covenant initiation, which would be infant baptism, belongs to professing believers and their children within the covenant. There is a single single covenant of grace. It's not like God saved this way in the old and this way in the new. There's continuity. God saves in one way, and that is through Christ. Through Christ. Paul's language here in, in Romans. He says that to experience the circumcision of Christ in the putting off of the body of the flesh is the same thing as being buried with him and being raised with him. The circumcision of Christ is a spiritual reality as we talk about it here. Uh, into the death of Christ, it is a spiritual reality. We reach this conclusion that there are two outward signs here. The, the circumcision and the baptism symbolize the same inner spiritual reality that goes on. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, In Christ you were also circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism. In baptism. So Paul is comparing these two material things and the spiritual reality to which they point. Now, as I said, it's, uh, infant baptism is kind of slightly misnamed. It's more of a covenant baptism than it is just an infant baptism. The child is under our authority in our household, and we are charged with the care of that child and the spiritual nourishment of that child. The same way that this church is, cared, is charged with the spiritual care of Logan and all the other children that you have said yes to those questions for. And saw me walk and carry that, those, those babies around. Um, you have to agree to those things. So baptism points, I think, 
to the initiative of God, the initiative of God's love. He reached out to us when we could not reach out to him. He came and grabbed a hold of us in salvation. It's a picture of his sovereign and saving grace. B.B. Warfield said, Every time we baptize an infant, we bear witness that salvation is from God, that we cannot do any good thing to secure it, that we all enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, as little children who do not do but are done for. We don't earn our salvation. It comes from our Heavenly Father. Baptism doesn't save us. Only Christ and his finished work on the cross can save us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have uh, touched this, this subject, it is not an incidental, it's not a tertiary thing. It's important because you call us to be baptized. You call us to go out into the world preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing. Because of this powerful sign that you have given us, Lord, we are reminded of the work of Christ. We are reminded how we who were your enemies, we who were far from you, we who, who were, were in our sin can be cleansed through the work of Christ that we can have our hearts change completely and, and receive a new heart, that we can take off the old and put on the new, the new things of Christ, that our sins can be washed, washed whiter than. Fix these things in our hearts, Lord. Help us to attend today to our own baptism, the promises that were made, the fulfillment that we have seen through faith in Christ. And Lord, as we prepare to come to the table that these things would would sit deep in our hearts would be secure there that we would come knowing that that Christ has gone before us that he has done the work and now you call us to participate and partake in these visible signs to be renewed refreshed reminded of the cost of our salvation and the great love that would send your son to give his life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.